Well, thank you, Pastor Sean. For those of you uh, who may be new to Hope Church or fairly recently, we've been going through 1 Corinthians uh, since June uh, last year. And the title of the series is The Prodigal Church. And so when I was thinking uh, or asking the Lord, what should I use as an opening? Uh, that's the thing I always wrestle with the longest during the week. And so the Lord spoke to me this morning at about 6 a.m. as to what the opening is. And he told me to answer the question, well, what is a prodigal church? Okay, well, a prodigal church is made up of prodigal people, prodigal sons and daughters. So I thought I'd share with you the story. Now, most of you are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, but that was a parable. I thought I'd share with you the story of a prodigal son. And that prodigal son's name is George Panna. And I want to share with you this morning my prodigal story. I was raised in a home where my mother and her family were strong believers. Although my dad joined the church, he was never spiritually inclined. We attended church every Sunday and we would pray before every meal every night. Yet in my teen years, being inquisitive, my brother and I snuck shots of whiskey from my dad's liquor supply and began to peek at his Playboy magazines. Along with a cousin, we later snuck into a strip show at a traveling carnival when we visited our grandparents. The deed was discovered. Our families were, we were uh, discovered by our families. We were confronted and we were ashamed. However, later, alone with our dad, instead of being punished, we were told by him how proud he was. We were growing up and becoming men. You see, I was receiving two distinct messages, one from my dad and the world, and one from my mother and the church. The summer before my senior year in high school, I was alone watching Billy Graham on TV. That was something we did on a regular basis, but I was alone that night, and I was convicted by the message and realized I was living for myself and was totally unprepared to meet Christ should he return. I prayed to receive Christ and felt a wonderful peace come upon me. I had a hunger to know his word and spend time with him in prayer, and I shared him with others. But certain hidden sins still plagued me, and I did not know what to do. I looked for a mentor, but found none. Soon I was in college, and I found I was totally unprepared for what I would experience there. And as time passed, I began to compromise, and by my senior year, I'd begun to drink alcohol just to fit in. Upon graduation, I was employed as a teacher and a coach at my alma mater and began to compromise even more, once more to be accepted. My colleagues drank to excess and were committing adultery and fornication. It did not take long for their lifestyle to become my own, Yet I was convicted by my sin, would pray for forgiveness, only to fall back into the same sin shortly thereafter. This pattern of sin, conviction, repentance, 
deliverance, the time of peace, and then a falling away continued throughout my 20s. My life was the book of Judges being played over and over again. Career disappointments, personal betrayals, deepening sin, thoughts of suicide after a failed relationship are just some of what marked this period of self-deception and moral and spiritual decline. I was losing hope with each passing year. I stopped attending church at the age of 30, and on my 32nd birthday, I was arrested for a DUI, which was long overdue. That was on a Saturday night. Sunday morning, when I awoke from my drunken stupor, I realized it was not a dream. It was at this moment of crisis in my life that the Lord spoke to me, telling me I had to choose. Either live for the world or live for him. But I had to choose. That Sunday morning, I chose a life of hope when I surrendered my life to Christ. On Monday, when I returned to work, it was as if scales had fallen from my eyes. I saw everything in a whole new light. The deception was gone, and I saw the truth both about myself and about others. I began listening to WCRF radio every night to the preaching and teaching and worship. My mind and heart were being transformed, and that was observable to others through the transformation of my life as well. I once again hungered to know God's word, to spend time with him in prayer and worship. I began attending a church that clearly taught God's word. I was discipled and grounded in the faith, and I began serving in the church in a variety of ways. After several years, a colleague at work confided in me that he had ruined his life with alcohol and ended his marriage in divorce through adultery. He said, I've been watching you, George. You've changed. I need what you have in my life. I was able to lead him to the Savior, and I discipled him for two years to ground him in the faith. He's still walking with the Lord. The hope he now, he now has, he credits to me, but all I did was point him to Jesus. Later, the Lord led me to Grace Church in Middleburg Heights, where I met and married my wife, Mary Beth. We've been blessed by God with going on 30 wonderful years of marriage. I want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Since I surrendered my life to Christ, this verse has become true in my life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, my life has been filled with joy and peace from God. My life abounds in hope because of Christ. Each morning I pray that others would see Christ in me, the hope of glory. This hope is available for you as well. Yeah. So as we're looking at the prodigal church, we have to understand that their culture back then had a lot to do with what they were believing, just as our culture today had a lot to do with my compromising in the faith. And so once more, once more as, we look, as we look at this story, we see that Paul had been in Corinth for a year and a half proclaiming the gospel. 
teaching, discipling. And back then, it wasn't just a Sunday morning for 35 minutes. Uh, it was all day. There goes the mic. It was all day and uh, all week long as well. And then he moved elsewhere. He was in Ephesus, and he was there for about two to three years. And while he's there, he's hearing about some issues that are taking place in Corinth. And so the letter to the Corinthians is addressing a number of these very disturbing topics, some of which were division in the church, uh, sexual immorality, uh, you know, abusing various gifts of the Spirit. And Paul addresses these throughout Corinthians. And then he gets to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, he wants to remind them one of the most important things that, uh, that he had, that he shared with them, and that is the gospel. And what we have to remember is that the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in an afterlife, some sort of spiritual situation that they weren't too clear about, but they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. As a matter of fact, when Paul was preaching in Athens, when he got to the point of Christ raising from the dead, they began to mock him and laughed at him because they thought that was ridiculous. Likewise, in the Roman world, they also did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Corinth happened to be the center for emperor worship. So if you want to be a good Roman citizen, you're going to be worshiping the emperor who claimed to be the savior of the world through the Pax Romana. Now, in contrast to this, Paul's going to proclaim a different savior, the true savior, Jesus Christ. And so when you took a stand for Christ, you are at odds with the world and the government. You are saying Caesar is not the Savior. Jesus Christ is. And you're taking a belief of the resurrection of the dead that everybody said was ludicrous. So with that in mind, in chapter 15, he's going to address this concept of the resurrection of Christ. And in verses 1 through 11, which Pastor Sean preached on last week, I'll read a portion of it briefly. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you for a year and a half, which you receive and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And he goes on to say, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to chronicle, historically, the various groups of people that saw him alive and raised from the dead. So, once more, what we're seeing then, and the rest of it, he's going to begin to take a look at the consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead. So he knows and believes that the People in Corinth believe that Christ was raised from the dead, but the problem is they don't know about their being raised from the dead. So let's take a look at that. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mm. So once more, he says, I want you to consider what you're really saying when you're saying that there's no resurrection of the body. You see, if there's no resurrection of the body, then Christ wasn't raised either. Well, how can he say that? Because, see, Christ was fully man and fully God. And as fully man, he was crucified. Now, here's the key. If that's all that happened to him, then our faith is in vain because lots of people were crucified. That was the Romans' favorite way of taking care of any opposition was to crucify them. So if Christ was crucified, the validity of that crucifixion is based on the resurrection. When he was raised from the dead, that validated that he had died for our sins. Therefore, once more, as we look at that, Paul's saying, understand, number one, if there's no resurrection, then Christ wasn't raised. And if he wasn't raised, our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. And not only that, we're proven to be liars because we have claimed that God raised Christ from the dead. So he's trying to help them point out, uh, you know, some of the fallacies of their beliefs. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have died have perished. If all we have in this life, if all we have is this life, is our hope in Christ only gives us this life, then he says we're to be pitied. Why? Because the church is persecuted all over the world, even today. It was persecuted then in the first century. We know Paul is addressing a lot of those churches and saying, if, if this is all there is, then what's the point? If this is all there is, then what's the point? But once more, Paul is not going to leave it there. He's just trying to show them that their beliefs about no resurrection of the dead were wrong. And so he goes on to state that Christ is our guarantee of our own resurrection from the dead. So in verse 20, Paul goes on to say, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has not put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All right, so what we're looking at here is he mentions that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay, so what's the first fruits? He's going to repeat it again in a couple of verses below there. The first fruits was a festival that occurred on the day after the Saturday after the Passover. Well, the day after the Sabbath, the Sabbath is always the seventh day, the seventh day is always Saturday. And the day after the Sabbath is always Sunday. So on the Sunday after Passover, the priest would take the first of the crop, take it into the temple, offer it to God, and by way of offering it to God, it is a confirmation it belongs to God. It is a confirmation that the harvest will come and the harvest belongs to God. So it is both a guarantee of the future harvest and also a proclamation that the entire harvest belongs to God. And so Christ's resurrection is our guarantee of our own resurrection. So Christ was our Passover lamb who was crucified on the Passover. Three days later, after being buried in a tomb, he arose as our guarantee that our sins have been forgiven and that we too will be resurrected along with Christ. So, he goes on to state in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, to believers, death is only sleep. The body sleeps, but the soul is at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord, but our body is asleep. That's the language that he uses. But at the resurrection, the body will be awakened and glorified. Now, Pastor Sean's going to talk about what that glorified body looks like next week. But we'll just leave it at that point. So now we're taking a look at the sequence that comes in place. He goes on to talk about, For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So what we're looking at here, we see in Romans 5 that Paul will also make uh, the comparison between Adam, through whom sin was introduced into the world, and death through that sin. And that sin and death came to all people because all were in Adam at that point in time. And he's also going to compare it and contrast it to Christ, who through Christ we have the resurrection and the forgiveness of sin. But he points out, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. And so what we want to do is we want to take a look in John chapter 5 to find out what Jesus had to say about the resurrection. And John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we see that Christ is saying there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection of life and then there's a resurrection of judgment. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul alluded to the same thing when he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so once more, we see there's two groups of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. We see there's two groups in the resurrection, those who are in the resurrection of life and those who are in the resurrection of of judgment. So if we take a look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul also there proclaims, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So as we look at this, we're seeing the order. Christ was the first fruits, guaranteeing the resurrection. Then at his coming, that's his second coming, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, and by that meaning those who believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior, those whose names are written in the book of life, those who are part of the resurrection of life. Then comes the end. Okay, well, what happens at the end? Well, Paul doesn't allude to it here. I'm sure he spoke to them about that. Uh, in that year and a half he was with them. But we need to go to Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, the Apostle John gives us a pretty clear picture. And we see in verse... Uh, chapter 20, verse 4, uh, about halfway down... Also I saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the, for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign of Christ. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, the first resurrection of those who believe in Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now we're going to see what the second death is in just a bit. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. And they will gather together for battle. And they will surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then, a, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged 
by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So when we get back here, we can see that he's trying to assure the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. So there's the resurrection of the living and the resurrection of judgment. He then goes on and tries to come up with some further implications about the resurrection from the dead and what significance or meaning it should have in our life. So as we take a look at verse 29, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can on this verse because this is a tough one. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, what's Paul talking about here? We haven't a clue. Okay? There's no reference of being baptized for the dead anywhere else in Scripture. There's no indication that being baptized for the dead was anywhere being practiced in any church in the first century or in the second century or even up to today. The first reference of being baptized for the dead were by the second century church fathers, so in the 100s A.D., Second century church fathers are writing about a Gnostic heresy of baptizing for the dead. And one of those church fathers says, well, maybe Paul was referencing this when he said baptism from the dead because he's trying to figure out what Paul meant as they're looking at this Gnostic heresy. Okay, so if the first century, excuse me, second century church fathers didn't know what Paul meant 75 years after he wrote it, there are over 200 different explanations, and all of them say, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, and guess what? Nobody agrees with each other as to what it is. Okay, so what's the point? point Paul's trying to make is, hey, wait a minute. There are people out there that are baptizing for the dead, and they don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, is that dumb or what? I mean, come on, seriously. Don't you connect what you believe with what you do? Life speaks louder than words. So you're saying you don't believe in a resurrection, whoever those people are. He didn't say some of you. He said people. Notice it's people. Well, which people? He didn't say. So there are people out there that are baptizing for the dead, but they don't believe in the resurrection. Why do it? Those people have already perished. Okay? So the second point he goes on to make is this. Why are we, he's talking about the apostles and Christians, but especially himself, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So what's Paul saying here? Look at my life. I said a little earlier, if there's no resurrection, then I'm a liar. 
Do you really think I'd put my life in jeopardy day in, day out for a lie? You know, in verses 1 through 11, he's, you know, and elsewhere, you know, he talked about, I was persecuting the church. In his mind, I was on the winning side. I'm rising up in the ranks of Judaism. And then all of a sudden, I met the risen Christ. And my life changed. And he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm one untimely born. But I've done more than anyone else, but not me, but the power of God in me, God's grace. Would I be living like this if the resurrection wasn't true? Look at my life. My life tells you the resurrection is real. I have seen the risen Christ. So that's the point he's trying to make there. Because otherwise he'd be living like the rest of the Gentile world. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. He goes on to finish and says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So, that brings us back to this week's title, Living in Light of the Resurrection. Okay, so how then do we live in light of the resurrection? Well, first of all, we need to answer the first and most important question. Which resurrection are you a part of? You're part of one or the other. Are you a part of the resurrection of life? Or are you a part of the resurrection of judgment? If you're part of the resurrection of life, then there's certain things we need to remember. As Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. Are there people in my life who are drawing me into the culture's values, beliefs, and practices and away from Christ? You heard that in my prodigal son story. I was trying to fit in. I was doing what they were doing. I knew it was wrong, but I compromised. Now, it may not be actual people, it could be people you listen to on the radio, people you watch as characters on TV shows. So who's speaking into your life or what's speaking into your life that's drawing you away from Christ? Understand that bad company with those ideas? Okay, that's going to destroy good morals. Then he talks about being sober-minded. Okay. The world's intoxicating attractions. Alcohol, the more you take, the more intoxicated you get, the less you're in a position to reason. The less you're in a position to make wise decisions and discernment. And so what he's saying is, this is not just about alcohol, but is it what? Wealth? Position? Power? Pride? What in the world's ways are intoxicating you that are drawing you away slowly from the truth of the gospel? 
Point blank, stop sinning. Are there strongholds in your life? You see, I had some strongholds I didn't even know were there because of things that I had done in my teen life. And then later on, it's, it's like a weed. You know, you can cut the head off the weed. The roots are still there. It keeps growing. Cut the head off the weed, it comes back. So are there are things in your life that are strongholds. Those roots are in there. Well, you need that what? Weed killer. The weed killer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, we talk about the fourfold gospel. Christ is our Savior, okay? But Christ is our sanctifier. Christ is the one who will transform our lives. If we surrender every area of our life to him, we'll see the transformation there. Amen. Christ is our healer. He's the one who can heal not only our bodies physically, he can heal our emotions, our relationships, the pain of our past sin. He's in the business of healing. And he's also our coming king. And one day he's going to make everything right. One day we will be raised with him in glorified bodies. So since we're going to be raised with him in glorified bodies, it's important how we live in our bodies now. Paul writes elsewhere, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the living God, which temple you are? God lives and dwells within each of you. As he had to say a little bit earlier, you know, our, our, uh, you know, some of the believers were going into the temple with temple prostitutes in that. Saying, well, the body doesn't matter. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The body doesn't matter. What are you doing? The body doesn't matter. And he's saying, no, it does. It's not just the soul. It's the body that gets resurrected as well. And last, you need to remember the resurrection of judgment. Who are the people that you need to share the gospel with? Because there's two resurrections. The resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Those apart from Christ are going to go before the great white throne of judgment. And if their name's not in the book of life, there's only one recourse, there's only one place of going, and that's the lake of fire. So once more, we're to live our lives in light of that. Now, if you are someone right now, either here or watching online, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time that you can do that. Amen. Now is the time that you can do that. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. It's also stated in Acts chapter 4, Peter says, And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, how do I do that? Well, Paul in Romans says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not may be saved, you will be saved. Let's bow our heads and pray. For those of you who are part of the resurrection of judgment, you can at this very moment in your heart cry out to God and say, Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I have not been living my life for you. 
and acknowledge I need you. Lord, I confess, I believe that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for my sins. And I believe you raised him from the dead as proof of that. And I cry out to you to please forgive me of my sins. And I'm trusting Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. If you prayed that prayer, we would ask that you would please let us know as we'd like to help you get grounded in God's word. And for those of you who are part of the resurrection of life, is your life a reflection of Christ in you? Are you drawing others to you by the way you live, drawing others to Christ by the way you live? Have they seen the transformation Christ can make in your life? Because the power of the resurrection that raised Christ is alive in us right now to transform our lives to be like his. And when we see Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But in the meantime, what areas of your life do you need to surrender to him and ask him to change? Father, we lay this all down at your feet and ask for your grace and power to accomplish your will in our lives. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.